Now, my Bible reading today is taken from Colossians chapter 2. We're thinking of Colossians chapter 2, and I want to read verses through 1 through to 10. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through to 10. Let's hear the word of God. Reading, of course, as we say often from the authorized version. Colossians 2, verses 1 through to 10. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now, for a few moments, I want to speak to the young people and the boys and girls. In the book of Proverbs, we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, and it says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Now, I've got something in the bag this morning that's maybe not to all the taste of the boys and girls and the young people. But it's a favourite of mine. And I'll tell you what it is. It's a bag full of cheese. So we've raided the fridge, we've raided the freezer, and I've got all different sorts of cheese here. Let me see if it'll sit. Oh, yes. All right. Now, I've got a particular cheese that I'm going to talk about in a moment. We'll keep going. Anybody hungry? Okay. Now, I want to speak to you about craft cheese. You see, we've been speaking about various great industrialists of the past who started off very small and they've grew very, very large businesses. And those men would be called the founding fathers of those businesses. And the vast majority of these founding fathers were all Christian men. And we're thinking about one man called John Craft, whom we'll call the cheese man. Now, John Craft, he was born in 1874 in the land of Canada. 
Now, he was of German descent. He was the second child, and he was born into what they would call a Mennonite family, a bit like the Amish community, but a good, godly family it was. And early in life, John Craft put his faith and trust in Christ as a Lord and Savior. In fact, it's recorded that when he was but a child, four or five years of age, he asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into his heart and to be his Lord and Savior. So he grew up trusting Christ as his Lord and Savior. And of course, under the influence of the Word of God, he was taught the, the, the things of the Holy Scriptures, uh, and he believed what the Bible taught about the person and work of the Lord Jesus and the way of salvation. But in his 20s, for whatever reason, in the providence of God, he, he left uh, his home in Canada, uh, and he traveled into the United States of America. You see, he wanted to start a business, and he had saved up some money, but sadly, whenever he was meeting di different individuals and talking to them about his business plans, these other men, they, they didn't deal with him very well or very kindly. In fact, they cheated him out of some of his money. And he found himself as a young man, just over 20 years of age, and he was in the great city of Chicago, full of crime at that time, and he had only $65 left. That's all the money that he had. And he thought, what am I going to do? I can't go home. So, so he, he had a time of prayer. He committed his way to the Lord. He, he was asking him, Lord, direct me. What am I going to do? Am I going to turn home or what am I going to do? And then it came back to him about the cheese that he used to make along with his father and mother and family when he was living in Canada. And he thought, that's what I'll do. I'll start making some cheese. So he got the ingredients and he made a batch of cheese. He knew how to do it. And he got a horse and cart. He rented it. And then he went around door to door. And he started knocking on doors and asking people, would you like to buy some cheese? Well, of course, the ladies loved him. And he started getting some money together. And also he went to the markets and he set up a little stall there, and people got to know him, and it was very good cheese, lovely, um, not so much chocolate biscuits and things about in those days, so people ate cheese, and it became known as craft cheese, and then he, he started up a, a shop, uh, John Craft Cheese, uh, and again, people came and flocked to him. Well, in about 1906, his brother came and joined him in the shop, and they were making a, a, a successful business. But then something else happened. In 1914, war broke out. World War I. And of course, they had all these soldiers. And how were they going to feed them? Feed them cheaply. Remember the Quaker Oats man? They not only fed them Quaker Oats, but they fed them cheese. And somehow, some way in the providence of God... John Craft in 1914 and 15 sold six million dollars worth of cheese to the United States Army. And of course the factory then just exploded from that. And today they have 70 different products. Craft cheese is the second largest firm in the world. It's got a value of 34 billion. It is 94,000 of a workforce. Now, that's amazing. 
And it all started with this man, John Craft, putting his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a young boy, asking him into his heart and life, and trusting him on life's journey to lead and direct him. But you know, John Craft also not only trusted in the Lord, but he gave his time to the Lord. Because he had a great love for boys and girls, great love for Sunday school, great love for children's work. And um, he helped in his local Sunday school uh, there in Chicago. But he did something else. He also gave away loads of money. He gave away millions of dollars. You see, all over America, there was, there was deprived areas. A lot of poor people, especially among um, the, the, the colored community. And he wanted to set up little churches in these communities so they could hear the gospel and be taught the word of God. So he was very instrumental in helping to found and fund uh, certain Baptist churches right throughout the whole of the United States of America. And um, he said this, uh, an interesting statement one time when he was asked, do you believe in tithing? And he said, no. You don't believe in tithing, but you're giving away millions of pounds. Or dollars. Well, that's exactly right. You see, the tithing is just the start. You see, he started with his 10%, and then he went to 20, and then he went to 30, and then he went to 50. Well, you see, when at the end of his life, he was given away 100% of his profits and challenging it into the Lord's work. So here's John Craft, Craft Cheese. What did he do in his life? He trusted in the Lord. He gave his time to the work of God, even though he was a busy businessman, but he also tithed all that he could because he wanted and he had an eye to lay up treasure in heaven. And I say to you young people, if you could follow an example, here would be a great example. Put your trust in the Lord early in life. Give your time to Christ and learn to tithe all that he gives you because this is what the Bible says. Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the first fruits of all thy increase. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse. Now this morning, as we continue our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians, my text today is taken from Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. It reads as follows, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, I've entitled this message, Understanding the Fullness of God in Christ. Now, what did the Apostle Paul mean when he was inspired to write this wonderful, assertive statement about Jesus Christ? Look at verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What does that mean? Let me ask a secondary question. Why mention it here? Why now at this point in his letter? Why in this particular context? Now these are two very good questions. And I believe these two questions must be answered. And I'm going to try and answer them for you. Now, I believe that every Christian cannot know enough about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every true Christian must keep in mind the absolute supremacy and sole sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ in his person and work. 
Surely we could say one of the main failures in the Christian's daily walk with the Lord is losing sight of him. A failure to remember him. A failure to think upon him. A failure to grasp that everything we are and everything we need is found in him. See, once we forget this, once we lose sight of this, then we're in danger of becoming a prey to the false teachers who can carry us away captive with their false teaching. The truth about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ must be central in our life. It must be central in the life and witness of the child of God. And the reality is, and this is true of pastor and people, we don't know enough about him. We don't know too much about him. And I do not believe that we will ever get to the place where we can say, I know everything there is to know about Jesus Christ. For our young people here, who is Jesus Christ? What kind of saviour is he? Do we believe, for example, in the Christ of Arius? Arius was a fourth century heretic who denied the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, denied his essential deity. See, Arius maintained that Jesus Christ is a created being, but he was definitely not the only begotten son of God. And the whole of Christendom for a time in the fourth century was following him. And one man stood against him. And that man was named Athanasius. And by the grace and help of God, Athanasius prevailed. And the great orthodox doctrine of the person of Christ was agreed and enshrined in a creed in the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. What about the Christ of the Jehovah Witnesses? You see, the Christ of the Jehovah Witnesses is a rebranded form of Arianism. Jehovah Witnesses don't believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal or the essential Son of God, equal with the Father. They view him as one of the highest angels. What about the Christ of Roman Catholicism? What about the Christ of Mormonism? You see, I could go on and on this morning. Remember, according to the context here, the Christian church at Colossae was battling heresy. And that heresy was a mixture of pagan philosophy, early Gnosticism, and ceremonial Judaism. And these heretics were insistent that along with Christ, we need to worship angels. Because angels act as mediators between us and God. And they added, well, you also need our special wisdom. Only we can give it to you. You must join our group. And then they said, but you need circumcision as well. And other strict Jewish laws in order to be a Christian. And what was Paul's answer? Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And the moment he says, not after Christ, then he continues. Look at verse 9. 4. You could translate that. 
because. You see, it's a continuation. Because in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You see, Paul is facing down the false teachers. And in order to do so, he keeps bringing his hearers and us, his readers, back to the central theme of the whole book. And what is the central theme of the whole book? The sole sufficiency and absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ and his person and work. And these two verses this morning, Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, really encapsulate the whole message of the book. You could ask, what is the book of Colossians about? Well, this is what it's about. For in him, that's Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, that's the introduction. Let's think of three things this morning. I want you to think of the essence or the explanation of the fullness of Christ. See, young people, when I read verse 9, I think to myself, what a statement. This statement is meaty and it's mighty. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But what does it mean? How are we all to understand it? Now, think with me for a moment of what it doesn't just mean. See, some people read that and think, well, I know, Jesus Christ is full of God. Now, that's included, but there's so much more. Do you know that a true Christian can be full of God? Remember what we read in Ephesians chapter 3 and in the verse 19. And to know the love of Christ, which patheth knowledge, for what reason? That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. There was an American theologian one time called Dr. J.I. Packer. Sadly, he's gone off the reels, but in former time, he wrote a wonderful book called Knowing God that I enjoyed reading and studying. Well, on one occasion, he was in England, and he met the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in Westminster Chapel. And he testified later to others. He said this, I've met a man today that had so much of God about him. It not only means that Jesus Christ is full of God, but there's others say, well, it means that Jesus Christ shows us God. Now he does, but so much more. He said, he that have seen me have seen the Father. But you see, creation itself teaches us about God. If you turn over there to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and we read this in verse um, 20, he said, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Something of the eternal power and Godhead of God is seen in the creative order. The whole of creation speaks and testifies of him, reveals to us that God is creator and maker. But there's more. Christ is like God. That is, he has the appearance of God. 
or possesses an aspect of a divine quality of God. You see, that's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. Jehovah Witnesses believe, and if I translate their verse, because it is in him all the fullness of divine quality. That includes divinity. Divinity is a quality in Christ. Christ teaches us about God. He does, but much more. Now, I want to make it clear this morning that this is not what that verse is teaching. It is not teaching that Jesus Christ is full of God, who shows us God, who is like in the appearance of God and possesses the the divine quality of divinity or teaches us about God. It doesn't mean that. Now, Now, those elements are there, they're included, but that's not the fullness of the meaning. Now, what does it mean? See, I've struggled with this. I've wrestled with this. Look at the words. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Not some, not a part, not a portion, not some aspect, not some quality, but all. You see, Jesus Christ did not have a part of the divine nature in him. Jesus Christ did not possess some aspect of the divine quality in him. Underline the word fullness. The totality of all that God is in the essence of his being. Notice the word dwelleth, present tense. See, Jesus Christ is God. That's what Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Islam, They all deny that. Jesus Christ always has been God and always will be God. Now I want you to understand something about Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten and the eternal Son of God. And from the exact moment of the doctrine of the incarnation, the second person of the Godhead took human form for eternity. Now I want you to understand something. Jesus Christ was God in Mary's womb. He was God as an infant when he was a baby. He was God as a child. He was God as a grown man. And he was a God during the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. And he was God on the cross when he died and shed his blood in his vicarious substitutionary atoning work. See, that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, great is the mystery of God, and as God was manifest in the flesh. And Jesus Christ is not only the embodiment of all that God is, but Jesus Christ is truly human. God's fullness The very essence of God dwells in Jesus Christ's body. When the eternal word took on human flesh. And Jesus Christ is therefore a wonderful, supreme, sufficient saviour. Because he is eternally God in human flesh. It was the late Bishop Henry Mole that said this. A saviour who is not quite God is like a bridge broken at the furthest end. 
You see, if Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God in human flesh, what more would we need? Why do you need an angel? Why do you need man-made rules? Why do you need circumcision and so on and so forth? Compared to the perfection of Christ in his person. Jesus Christ possessed a truly unique, sinless body. And God in all his fullness dwells bodily in Christ. Now you're saying to me this morning, but pastor, I can't grasp that. That's too much. Think of this illustration. Think of a government. You think of all the information that the government has on its citizens. Think of all the information government has to do with its history from the commencement of the country. Think of the the various minutes in parliament, the various transactions and all the meetings. And for years they were stored in files and put into boxes and put into pallets and the pallets were put into warehouses for safekeeping. But nowadays, because of the advancement of technology, a lot of it can be translated and put into a hard drive. And I have an old laptop at home, and I've got a hard drive from it, and if I want some of my information, I can go into the hard drive. In other words, the hard drive is a compression of the information. Information is compressed in a very small format. And some of you know that in relation to compression, as far as technology is concerned, you can have JPEG files that take a lot of information, but sadly that information isn't retractable. And MP3 can be similar. But there's another type of compression, a different type, called non-lossing. And there's no loss of the original information. It can be compressed to the smallest compression that's possible and still retractable. And you see this verb here, dwelleth. This verb is connected to the adverb bodily. The adverb modifies the verb bodily. And you see what he's teaching us is this. That the fullness of God, all that God is in his essence, dwells in Christ in a compressed or a concentrated form. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, has the complete equality of essence with the Father and the Spirit. He's not similar to God. You've got to think about he is God consubstantially. The sum total of all that God is dwells continually, permanently, and yet in a contracted form in Christ. Jesus Christ has lost none of his eternal sonship. He lost none of his eternal power and glory when he became a true man because it's concentrated in his human body. It's compressed in him. The fullness of God fills Christ. The late Dr. Alan Kearns called it a communicative fullness that God gave to his son. Now, why labor this? Why emphasize this? What was Paul doing in Paul's day? Why are we emphasizing in our day? 
because the world is in a dark place in relation to the personal work of Christ. Many man-made philosophies abound, philosophies that are pagan in origin. Human wisdom is applied to who Jesus Christ is and what he's like and what he's accomplished. We're thinking of what the world thinks. Mormonism, Jehovah Witnessism, Islam. You see, Jesus Christ is indeed full of God. He shows us God. He's like God. He teaches us about God, but so much more. You see, in the Muslim world, for example, Jesus Christ is a prophet, a great prophet, not the greatest prophet. They say Muhammad is. But in our world, we, we, we sing about him, we talk about him. Oh, Jesus, yes. But he's looked upon as some sort of superhero, some sort of helper that comes alongside in time of need. And um, it was so brave of him to go to the cross and, and teach us about the love of God and display God's love to us and teach us how to die a martyr. Now, all of those things are true, but so much more. And what's missing from the worldview as they think of Christ and talk about him, that he's the all-sufficient, supreme, only redeemer of God's people. Why? Because in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And that's the explanation or the essence of the fullness of God in Christ. Now, something secondly, it comes out of this text, and it's this. The effect of the fullness of God in Christ. If you think of the words, in him. Now, that's Pauline terminology. It's used 90 times in Paul's letters. Many times here in the book of Colossians. We'll see more about that next week. Well, in the shorter catechism, question 21, that asks the question, who is the redeemer of God's elect? And here's the answer. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two uh, distinct natures and one person forever. You see, bear in mind what I've already said. Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient, supreme, only redeemer of God's people. Why? Because he's filled with all the fullness of God. And Jesus Christ is sufficient in regard to the Father. Do you know that three times from heaven the Father spoke about his Son? Let me give you the references. Turn over there to John chapter 12. Look with me at verse 28. John 12 and 28. Let the word of God speak to your heart this morning. John chapter 12 and verse 28. And we read this. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. So there's the first occasion. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Come to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5. I'm going in a backward order. Matthew 17 and verse 5. And while he yet spake, this was Peter. Remember he said, Let us, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us 
Make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Verse 5, Matthew 17, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now, these disciples saw the glory of Christ shining through the veil of flesh. Peter, of course, he's overcome. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. And the Father spoke. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now, of course, turn over there to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. This time again, Matthew 3. Here's the, the baptism of the Lord Jesus. Verse 16 of Matthew 3, it says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, do you get the picture? In other words, Jesus Christ is efficient in regard to his Father. And if we stand for a moment in Jordan, relation to his baptism, the disciples were not going to do it. He had to say to them, suffer it to be so, when he spoke to John the Baptist. Because it behoves us to what? Fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus Christ was sent by the Father, fulfilling the work of the covenant of redemption, to earn a righteousness to put to the account of sinners. A perfect righteousness provided for us. A perfect righteousness procured for us in his death and bloodshedding. And God looks upon that righteousness in his son and he's well pleased. See, Jesus Christ fully and totally satisfied and pleased the Father with every word, every thought, and every deed. In fact, every aspect of his life. The Father could say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus Christ is sufficient in regard to the sinner. He said to John the Baptist, let it be so, so we can fulfill all righteousness. And part of his mission of coming into the world was to not only be the servant of man, but to be the saviour of all who would trust him as Lord and Redeemer. You see, Jesus Christ, because the fullness of God was in him, in a compressed, in a communicated fullness, he inherited righteousness. He had inherent righteousness because he's God, perfectly and sinfully holy. But he came to this earth under the law to procure a righteousness or to earn a righteousness. And how did he do it? By his sinless life and by his atoning death. And remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, if I read it to you here, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You and I were held deserving sinners. We had nothing to offer God. All our righteousness was as filthy rags in his sight. We were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And we needed a perfect righteousness with which to stand before God. And there was no hope of earning or procuring a perfect righteousness in herself. Well, is there no hope? Yes, there is. Because that righteousness is in Christ. And in Christ you can be cleansed from all your sin. 
But in Christ you can be clothed in the garment of righteousness. And you can't get into heaven without that garment of perfect righteousness. Let me tell you something else this morning. Jesus Christ is all sufficient in regard to the believer. Here's, here's the outworking of this, the fullness of God in Christ. Look at verse 10. And ye are complete in him. Do you see that there? You have been made full in him. The verb complete literally means filled full. You're filled full in him. Now let that impact in your life now. Let that impact in the world to come. Christ is all sufficient now. The saints in Colossae needed to learn this, needed to discover this, needed to realize, needed to grasp this. See, we'll ask the fundamental question, what difference does Jesus Christ make in your life? And here's the answer. In Christ, you are in union with him. You've been brought into the most closest possible relationship. A union with a divine fullness. You are not only united to him in a saving relationship, but you're complete in him. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily in him is now made over to all who are in him. All the fullness of grace, all the fullness of holiness, the fullness of righteousness, the fullness of wisdom, the fullness of strength, the fullness of provision, the fullness of help, the fullness of power, all by virtue of being in union with him. Therefore, you don't need to look anywhere else. Don't need to look to angels. Don't need to have special wisdom. You don't need to have rites and ceremonies. Let this revolutionize your heart and mind. If you're in him this morning, you're made full. That's what Paul's teaching. That's a key issue. You're complete from head to toe. There's no empty pockets. There's no part where, where that fullness hasn't been applied. Believers in Colossae were in union with Christ and united to him in a saving relationship. And they were discovering that Jesus Christ is so sufficient for us. Why? Because we're in union with him. We are filled full in him. Does not blow the mind. All the fullness of God in the human body of Jesus Christ. And all the fullness of Christ is in us. All the grace, the righteousness, the wisdom, the help, the power. Think for a moment of this illustration. Think of a marriage. A wife is joined to her husband. Now let's suppose this lady comes from a very poor background. She, she lived in a humble little college. She's, she's just a lowly maiden. But the man that she's marrying, well, he's rich. He's very well to do. And he lives in a mansion and there's servants and there's loads of food on the table and there's riches galore. Then the moment she joins in a union, a marriage union with her husband, all that he is, she becomes by that legal bond of the union of marriage. She becomes equal in that sense with her husband because all that he is and all that he has becomes hers. Now, now that's a faint illustration of those who are brought into a saving union with Christ. 
the effects of this fullness of Christ. He's sufficient in regard to the Father for he pleased him. He's sufficient in regard to the sinner because everything that the sinner needs, he provides. And he's sufficient in regard to every believer for in him we are complete. We are filled full in him. Now one final thing this morning which is important. The experience of the fullness of God in Christ. Do you see Christ as the sole saviour this morning? Are you united to Jesus Christ by faith? Have you a testimony to a saving and keeping power? Do you know him? Was there a day in your life when you became his? And you realized this morning in a spiritual sense, I'm married to a mighty king, a, a wonderful saviour. And I want to tell you there's no grace channeled to any individual outside of Christ. The grace isn't in the church. The grace is in Christ. And do you see him as the saving one this morning? And if you come to him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Have mercy upon me. Forgive me, Lord. Lord, save me in your name. You alone can answer that question. Are you united to Jesus Christ by faith? The second thing I want to emphasize, do you see him this morning as the sufficient one? Because I realize that many here this morning do profess to know and love Christ as Lord and Savior. And they testify. There was a time in my life when I received Christ as my Lord and Savior. But this is what I want to leave you with. Do you realize how rich you are? Do you realize how blessed you are? Do you realize how full you are? Do you realize that you have need of nothing? You lack nothing in Christ. Why? Because you possess all the fullness of God in Christ. If you have Christ, we have told you, you have everything. If you're without Christ, you have nothing. Maybe this morning you feel as a Christian you're a spiritual pauper. You say, but my life's boring. But my life's empty. Oh, I, I, I know Christ, but it doesn't really mean that much to me. Maybe you're complaining this morning, well, I've no access to God. I've no ability nor the desire to pray. Maybe you say, well, I've no power to live a life of victory. No, no, no power to become an overcomer and say no to temptation and no to persecution. Maybe you're saying, but I have no strength to defeat the world and the devil. I, I'm easy prey. Maybe you're saying, but I've got nobody to help me. I, I, I'm struggling, poor me. I want to tell you, you're telling yourself lies. Because if you're in Christ, the fullness that's in Christ belongs to every true Christian in Christ. It belongs to the true church of Christ. As we finish, turn over there to Psalm 133 for a moment. Remember this beautiful psalm. It's a wonderful psalm, Psalm 133. And what did the psalmist say? He said this. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What's it like? It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now we'll pause there. Note the reference to the head. 
It ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirt of his garments. In other words, from the head, the oil flowed right down to the whole of the body. And that's what it is in Christ. All that's in Christ flows to his body. You've heard of Napoleon Bonaparte. For some particular reason, he wanted to reward a very brave soldier. I think this soldier was involved in helping to protect Napoleon Bonaparte and uh, save his life. Well, he sent this soldier to the treasurer and he sent him with this command. You go to the treasurer, my treasurer, who's in charge of my treasury, and ask for whatever you want. So this man went, and we don't know the exact sum, but he asked for a ridiculous sum, a tremendous amount of money. Be like going and saying, well, I want a billion pounds. So the wee treasurer, he was flabbergasted and flustered and he went back to Napoleon and said, do you you realize what this man has asked for? You told him to ask for a ridiculous sum and he's asked for this amount. Now this is what Napoleon Bonaparte said. Give it to him because he honors me in asking. You see, if you're in Christ, you're married to Christ and united to one who is so rich that he can supply your every need. Do you need power this morning? To overcome temptation? Do you need grace to cope with your trials and pressures of life? Do you need help in a particular area? Even the need for the church, I was thinking about this, the need for money and the need for men, the need for children and young people and new families to to replenish those that the Lord has taken from us. Maybe you're bedridden. Maybe you're weak in body and in pain and you're struggling. And you're saying, can he help me? The answer is yes, he's there. He is all sufficient. You see, here's the problem. We have been wrong in our thinking. The world's thinking about Jesus Christ has impacted upon us. You see, he's not just a helper. He is that. The Lord is my helper, but he's more. He's not just a hero, like a, a, someone who can come along and, 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 and defeat your enemy. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a leader. He's the supreme, all-sufficient Savior. And I would say, don't lose sight of him. I would say this morning, never despise your union in him. You are complete in him. You're, You're born complete in him. And therefore, you can grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. You can grow not by addition, but you grow by nutrition. You grow from the inside out in the grace and help of God. Here's the experience of the fullness of God in Christ. Seeing him as the saving one. But seeing him as the all-sufficient one. Do you realize what you have in him? May the Lord give us grace and wisdom and understanding.